If you would take your Bible and please turn to the book of Genesis. Genesis 22. We'll be reading from verses 1 through 14. Genesis 22, verses 1 through 14. Genesis 22. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took took in his hands the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told them, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Father, who is in heaven, all-seeing, all-knowing, all-glorious God, all-providing God, we come to you this morning seeking to know you, thirsting to know you. As the deer pants for the water brooks, Lord, our hearts pant after you. So won't you be with us? Help us to grasp the things which are spoken from your word. May you honor yourself in our presence, we pray in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. During the Reformation in the late 1500s, the Reformers coined a catchphrase called Corum Deo. 
Coram Deo is a Latin phrase which means before the face of God. Coram Deo refers to the fact that God sees everything, that God knows everything. God knows everything about everyone at every moment, past, present, and future. Coram Deo has been the heartbeat of Christians for generations. It has been the heartbeat of Christian missions, of Christian ministry, of Christian daily living for generation after generation, for ages upon ages. Coram Deo is very old. In fact, it is 500 years old. But while the phrase Coram Deo is 500 years old, the concept of Coram Deo is much older than that. It is as old as scripture itself. It is as old as eternity. And the reason is, the root of Coram Deo is none other than an attribute of God. The attribute of God's omniscience. The fact that God knows everything about everyone at every time, past, present, and future. We've been looking at the attributes of God. And I want to bring us back to the bigger picture for just one moment. We start with God, God himself, and that is the purpose of this study, to behold our God. We must not lose sight of that. And when we look at the attributes, we realize that we can divide the divine attributes into the communicable attributes of God and the incommunicable attributes of God. Now, to help us organize our thoughts further... I want us to see that we can further subdivide the communicable attributes of God into four subdivisions. The intellectual attributes of God, the sovereign or purposeful attributes of God, the moral attributes of God, and a group of attributes which we will call the summary attributes of God. Today, we will be looking at the intellectual attributes of God. And here are today's topics. We will be covering the topics of God's omniscience, God's wisdom, and we will talk about open theism. With that said, let's talk about the omniscience of God. The omniscience of God refers to God's knowledge. It comes from the Latin omni, meaning all, and science, meaning knowledge. Therefore, God is all-knowing, or God has all knowledge. The definition of omniscience, according to Burkhoff, is that perfection of God whereby he, in an entirely unique manner, knows himself and all things possible and actual in one eternal and most simple act. 1 John 3.20 says, God knows all things. Job 37.16 calls God the one who is perfect in knowledge. Now, that means exactly what it says. God knows everything. God knows everything there is to know about everything, at all times, in every way possible. He is in no way deficient in knowledge. God knows all creatures. God knows all humans. God knows all events. God knows all molecules. God knows every fact. God knows every possibility. God knows absolutely everything there is to know about everything, past, present, and future. God knows everything there is to know about us. We are Coram Deo. 
you live before the face of God. Now let's just start with a place that validates God's omniscience. God knows himself. He knows himself. God knows everything there is to know about God. God knows everything there is to know about himself. In our second session, we talked about the incomprehensibility of God. And we saw that from our standpoint, it is impossible for us to fully comprehend God, to fully grasp God, to exhaustively know our God. It is impossible for us to know everything there is to know about God. But God does the impossible. God knows everything there is to know about himself. God knows everything there is to know about the incomprehensible God. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 11 says, For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For what person knows a man's thoughts except the spirit of the man which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. The only person that can truly plumb the depths of God is God. The only person that can search and grasp and comprehend the eternal, infinite thoughts of God is the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity. God himself knows God. Only God can know the infinite God. Now this is, in fact, a greater to lesser argument. And that's illustrated with this diagram. If God is the biggest circle, because he is infinite, then he must contain all things finite. If God knows himself, the biggest circle, then he knows everything that falls within that circle. He knows everything about the universe. He knows everything about the earth. He knows everything about humans. He knows everything down to little old you and me, to all the molecules and cells which make us tick. He knows everything about every atom in this universe, and he calls it his. If God can know the infinite, then the finite is a piece of cake for him. So we move on in our definition of God's omniscience. God knows all things actual. He knows all things that actually happen, that actually have happened, and that actually will happen. God knows everything there is to know about us. He knows all of our actions and thoughts. Psalm 139, verses 1 and 2. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. God knows the state of our physical being. Matthew 10, verse 30. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. God knows every single hair on top of your head and every single hair that falls off of your head. Spurgeon used to talk about the fact that when he walked along the street and he saw the wagons being pulled by the horses and he realized every single speck of dust that fell from the wheel of the wagon, God knew. Every single speck of dust. And this should comfort us, for God also knows all of our needs. All of our needs. Matthew 6, verse 8. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. 
God knows every single one of our needs, and he knows exactly the best and most perfect way to fulfill them. God knows our physical being. God knows our needs. God also knows all of creation and all that happens within creation. Hebrews 4.13, no creature is hidden, but all are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God knows everything there is to know in creation. God's knowledge is also not limited by time. God knows everything past, present, and future. Now, this is very important. I want you to zero in on this because I'm going to introduce a term right now that will become very important later on. God has what theologians call exhaustive, definite foreknowledge. Exhaustive, definite foreknowledge. It's foreknowledge in the sense that God knows the future. He is foreknowing. He knows what will happen in the future. It's exhaustive in the sense that God knows everything that will happen in the future. Comprehensively, every single last detail. Exhaustively, God knows what will happen in the future about everything. And it's definite in the sense that he definitely knows this. He's not guessing. He's not playing with probabilities or likelihoods. He's not hedging his bets. God knows this will definitely happen. It is absolute knowledge. God knows the length of all of our lives and what each day brings forth for us. Psalm 139, verse 6. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. God knows even before we speak a word, He knows our words before we speak them. Psalm 139, verse 4. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. Daniel 11 demonstrates God's knowledge of future historical events. It is absolutely astounding. If you study Daniel 11, you will be shocked at just the nitty-gritty detail that God describes future historical events. God knows exactly what will happen in the future. Lastly, Jesus knows the future. John 13, verse 19, Jesus says, For now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Jesus predicts future events so that we may believe that he is the I am, the Yahweh, the Lord of the Old Testament. Jesus is God in human flesh because he predicts the future. Now we will talk about this again later on when we talk about open theism. So God knows everything actual. But he also knows everything possible. Sometimes we see God speaking in terms of things that could have happened or things that would have happened but didn't actually happen. 
Matthew eleven twenty one, 21, Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Jesus didn't say that Tyre and Sidon repented. They didn't. But Jesus knew that they would have repented. Jesus knew what would have occurred. God knows all the possibilities and all the potentialities of every single situation. God knows all the variations. He knows all the variables of every single thing that happens. He knows all the millions upon millions of permutations and combinations of future possible potential historical events. That is mind-blowing. If that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what will. So to move on in our definition, God knows all things in one eternal and most simple act. And here we talk about the nature of God's knowledge. We say that God's knowledge is simple in the sense that it does not fall into parts. It's unified. It's one. There are no contradictions in God's knowledge. It is always in perfect harmony. Every single piece of God's knowledge exists in perfect harmony with one another. It's unified. God's knowledge is also intuitive. He doesn't have to figure things out to know them. It's also innate or immediate. That is, it does not come from a process. God doesn't have to sit there and think about it and reason through it. He doesn't have to sit there and observe it in order to figure it out. God just instantaneously, immediately knows it like that, once and for all. It's also simultaneous. God sees all things at once in their totality, not one after another, not in succession. God sees and knows everything all at once. He is fully aware of everything at one time, all at once. And the thing that blows my mind even further is God's knowledge is eternal. That is, from eternity past, and I can't even fathom this, but from eternity past, God has known everything there is to know about everything. In my mind, I think, well, one day God didn't know this, and then he knew it. No, that's not right. From eternity past, From before the beginning of time, God already knew everything. It also means that God never learns something new. God's knowledge never changes. It never grows. From eternity past, God already knew everything there was to know about everything. Now, here are the answers to the matching, just in case you're keeping track. This will be on the final exam later on. Simple is C, intuitive is E, innate or immediate is B, simultaneous D, eternal A. Tozer says, because God knows all things perfectly, he knows no thing better than any other thing but all things equally well. He never discovers anything. He is never surprised, 
never amazed. So that is the omniscience of God. Now let's move on to the wisdom of God. First, I'd actually like to talk about wisdom. What is wisdom? If we do not understand what wisdom is, then we will never understand what the wisdom of God is. So we must first address the topic of wisdom. And first, let me ask, what is wisdom not? Well, wisdom is not the same thing as factual knowledge. Irreligious, secular people tend to equate wisdom with knowledge, with know-how, with facts. And those are all well and good in their place. How do I fix my car? Well, there's a way to do it, and there was a way not to do it. How do I get better from this illness? Well, you have to know what medicine to take and what medicine not to take. What is two plus two? Well, there's a right answer and there's a wrong answer. That's all factual knowledge and that's all well and good. But you and I know plenty of people that know a lot of book knowledge who are not wise. Therefore, wisdom should not be equated with factual knowledge. So if Irreligious, secular people tend to equate wisdom with knowledge. Religious, especially conservative religious people, tend to equate wisdom with moral rules or moral laws. But wisdom is not the same thing as moral rules or moral laws. Religious people tend to equate wisdom and morality. They say, well, as long as we obey the moral rules, we will be wise. Well, that's... Partly true, but not entirely. Sometimes all you need are moral laws. Oh, you know, I'm, should, I, should I murder this person? Well, the wisdom, no, no, no. Should, should I embezzle $100,000 from my work? Ah, if I had some wisdom, no, no, you shouldn't. The answer is no. Those are moral laws. Those are moral rules but they are not the same as wisdom. Wisdom is what you need when you meet situations in life that are not addressed by laws, moral laws, moral rules. Wisdom is when you meet situation in life that is not addressed by factual knowledge. Should I move here or there? Should I take this job or not? Should I marry this person or should I not? Should I go to this school or that school? Now sometimes, when we're faced with those situations, there are issues of moral obedience or there are issues of factual knowledge, but a lot of times there's not. What will you do when there are equally moral options? What will you do when your factual knowledge comes short? You need wisdom. You need wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom is knowledge and moral goodness applied practically. Wisdom is choosing how to use what you know in the best way possible for the best result possible. So with that backdrop, I'd like to keep that in mind as we discuss the wisdom of God. Wayne Grudem defines the wisdom of God as God's wisdom means that God always chooses the best goals, and the best means to those goals. Theological literature, this is called the omnisapience of God. Sapience means wisdom. So God is all wise. 
Romans 16.27 says that God is the only wise God. Job 9.24 says God is wise in heart. God is a very wise God. God is perfect in wisdom. And going along with our definition, God always chooses the best goal. Now this is where the world gets hung up. The world thinks that God's best goal is God is love, love, love. Or God exists to make people happy. Or God exists to make sinners comfortable. Or God exists. God's best goal is to make everybody in the world equally happy. To give you an easy life. Well, that's not true. God does want us to be joyful in him. But the greatest goal of God is God's own wisdom. God's own glory. God's own power, God's own strength, God's own omniscience. To glorify God, that is the best goal of God's wisdom. It has always been and it will always be his best goal. Romans 11.36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory forever. Amen. That is the best goal of God's wisdom. Now let's see some of the best means to that goal. For God's wisdom uses the best means to the best goal. Creation displays the wisdom of God. Psalm 104 verse 24. O Lord, how many are your works? In wisdom you have made them all. Creation exists to glorify the wisdom of God. Now think about this. God knows all the hypotheticals. He knows all the possible worlds that he could have made. But he chose this world, this one, this course of history. This is the best of all possible worlds to bring himself maximum glory. God created this world as the best of all possible worlds in all wisdom. Perhaps the most powerful way that God displays his wisdom is the plan of redemption, the cross. 1 Corinthians 1.21 says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. 1 Corinthians 1.25, Paul says, Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. When the world thought that God had committed the ultimate folly by letting his Messiah be hung on a cross, God was outsmarting the world. When men laugh and mock God's crucified Savior, God was putting his wisdom on display. Think of this. No human being would ever think of a plan of salvation that involved a crucified Messiah. It's too absurd. It's too ridiculous. It's too foolish. But only God in his infinite wisdom could come up with such a brilliant yet improbable plan to humble and save sinners and glorify himself. And the so-called foolishness of God is wiser than men. Moreover, the church displays the wisdom of God. Ephesians 3 verse 10 so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This means that we, Cornerstone, 
Brothers and sisters, in this church, we exist to glorify the wisdom of God. Only one so wise could unify a people so diverse, so diverse in ethnicity, in color, in race, so diverse in gifts, in spiritual gifts, in talents, so diverse in stage of life, in job, in training, so diverse is all of us. Only the manifold wisdom of God could unify and exceed the manifold differences of the church. We exist to glorify the wisdom of God. So that's the omniscience and the wisdom of God. In our time remaining, I'd like to talk about one major challenge to the omniscience and the wisdom of God. And it is a very important one. It is the theological position known as open theism. Just out of curiosity, who has heard of open theism? Well, that's good that you've heard of it. Maybe not so good that you've heard of it. But, but we will talk about why that is. First, I'd like to talk about the background of open theism. Clark Pinnock is known as the father, the pioneer, the architect of open theism. The other major name you should know is a man named Greg Boyd. Pinnock and Boyd were the major men who taught open theism from within evangelicalism. Now, notice I said within evangelicalism. That's what makes this important. That's what makes this dangerous. Open theism did not come from liberals. It came from people like you and me. It came from churches like Cornerstone. Open theism is a doctrine which is masquerading as Christian orthodoxy. Open theism is a doctrine which is masquerading as true evangelical Christianity, while it is anything but. For instance, Boyd was a professor at Bethel Seminary. This is the same seminary that John Piper and Bruce Ware taught at. He was at one time a conservative Christian Calvinist, just like you and me. On historical note, open theism is rooted in the Socinian heresy of the 17th century. The Socinians believed the same. They believed a lot of heretical things, but they also believed the same as the open theists, that God does not know the future. And the Socinians were met on the theological front by a, a man named John Owen. You should know the name John Owen. He is perhaps the greatest theologian of the English language, either him or Jonathan Edwards. If there was one theologian he didn't want to mess with, it would be John Owen. He was ordained, and then he was approved by the Chancellor of England to refute the Socinian heresy. And a year later, he produced a 500-page book, and he called it The Mystery of the Gospel Vindicated and Socinianism examined. If you don't want to read John Owen's 500-page book, I understand. There are other resources, very good resources, that I can point you to. There's a book by John Frame, and I've listed them for you here. John Frame, John Piper, Justin Taylor, and Paul Helseth. But the one resource, if you only had to pick one, that I want to point you to is this book by Bruce Ware called God's Lesser Glory. It's a fantastic book and I commend it to you. I've relied upon it heavily here. Now, I have a burden to tell you about open theism. And the reason is because if you think open theism 
is a theological fad that is just fading away. Unfortunately, it's not. Open theism is growing in prevalence. It is growing in relevance. If you go to a Christian college nowadays, and typical Arminian Christian college, I'm not talking about Masters University or Wheaton or something like that. If you go to a typical Arminian Christian college, you will find that open theism is growing on the college campus. If you go to Azusa Pacific, right up the freeway, or Seattle Pacific, or Christian universities like that, you will find that open theism is alive, not only alive, it is thriving. And we know that means for future generations, when typical Christian college students are being affected, that will trickle down into the church. And so it behooves us, brothers and sisters, to equip ourselves, not only for our sake, but for the sake of our children. What is the essence of open theism? Open theism teaches that God does not know the future. God does not know the future either because it is impossible for anyone to know the future, even God, or God purposefully limits himself from knowing the future. Either way, God does not know the future. In theological terms, open theism denies exhaustive, definite foreknowledge. Greg Boyd says in his book, Letters from a Skeptic, in the Christian view, now notice he contrasts the Christian view with his own. In the Christian view, God knows all of reality, everything there is to know. That's what we just talked about. But to assume he knows ahead of time how every person is going to freely act assumes that each person's free activity is already there to know, even before he freely does it. But it's not. If we have been given freedom, we create the reality of our decisions by making them. And until we make them, they don't exist. Thus, in my view at least, there simply isn't anything to know until we make it there to know. So God can't foreknow the good or bad decisions of the people he creates until he creates these people. And they, in turn, create their decisions. The future cannot be known because it does not yet exist. And if it does not yet exist... There's nothing there to know. Nobody can know the future, says Boyd. Not even God. Bottom line, God does not know the future. Clark Pinnock says in the landmark book, The Openness of God, and he finds open theism as this. God rules in such a way as to uphold the created structures. And because he gives liberty to his creatures, he is happy to accept the future as open, not closed, and a relationship to the world that is dynamic, not static. We see the universe as a context in which there are real choices, alternatives, and surprises. This is where the term open theism comes from. Open theism, open means the future is open. It's open-ended. God doesn't know the future. So in contrast, a closed future is a future in which God what? God knows the future. God knows everything there is to know about the future. Now interestingly, who believes in a closed future? Everybody else. 
every single denomination, every single church, every Christian in all of Christendom throughout all of church history believes in a closed future, that God knows the future. That includes all Orthodox churches, Russian, Eastern, Greek Orthodox. It includes all Roman Catholics, all Catholics. It includes every single type of Protestant, Reformed and Calvinistic, definitely. Baptist, Presbyterian, Congregational, Methodist, Dutch Reformed, Lutheran, Swiss Reformed, Dispensational. It also includes traditional Arminians. Everybody else throughout all of church history believes in a closed future. God knows the future. And that includes traditional Arminian believers. So we're talking about an outlier here. The motivation for open theism, and Pinnock says it right here, Quote, because he gives liberty to his creatures, we see the universe as a context in which there are real choices, alternatives, and surprises. Open theism is called free will theism. That's the other name for it. And that's because all open theists are Arminians. Not all Arminians are open theists, but all open theists are Arminians. Now let me explain that. Traditional Arminians believe that God has complete and total free will. But traditional Arminians also believe that God knows the future. Well, open theists take this to the extreme and they say, well, because you have total and complete free will, God cannot know the future. Because if God knows what you will choose tomorrow, do you have a free choice? If God knows what you will choose, that means you are not free to choose. For instance, if tomorrow God knows that you will choose Cheerios instead of cornflakes for breakfast, were you really free to choose cornflakes? The open theist says, no. If God knows ahead of time what you will choose, then you do not have true free will. Therefore, since we are all free creatures, God cannot know the future. Now, what are the arguments, the biblical arguments for open theism? Well, we covered one of them a few weeks ago when we talked about divine repentance texts. The other major line of biblical arguments are the texts that are called divine learning texts. They're also known as the growth in knowledge text. For instance, a famous text is the one we read this morning, Genesis 22. And you know this story well. God tells Abraham to take his son, the son of the covenant, the son of promise, Isaac, go to Mount Moriah and offer him up as a sacrifice. Kill your son, Abraham. And so Abraham goes to Mount Moriah with Isaac. He binds him, he puts him up on the altar, and he raises up his knife over his son. And right then, the angel of the Lord says, Abraham, Abraham! And you can just imagine him there holding up this knife over his son with his hands trembling, with tears running down his face. And he says, do not kill your son. For now I know that you fear God. Hmm. The open theists say, well, clearly that means God didn't know Abraham feared him. God was ignorant, but now God knows. 
So God is not omniscient. God doesn't know the future. God didn't know that Abraham feared him. Is that true? Is that how we should read that text? Well, I argue no. And here I'd like to close with problems with open theism. And there are three of them that I'll mention. The first is a scriptural problem. So does this mean that God did not know the future? Does this mean that God was ignorant and now he learned that Abraham feared him? Did God not know that Abraham feared him and in that moment he learned? The answer is no. We've already seen the testimony of exhaustive definite foreknowledge. But I'd also look to look, like to look at the testimony of Hebrews 11, 17 to 18. The writer to the Hebrews says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he had also received him back as a type. So Abraham trusted and feared God so much that he believed that if he killed his own son Isaac, God would raise him from the dead. Abraham trusted in the promise of God so much that he believed if he slaughtered his own son Isaac, God would resurrect Isaac from the dead. This is confirmed in the testimony of Genesis 22 verse 5. Before Abraham and Isaac went up the mountain, Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Notice, we, plural. We will worship. We will return. Me and Isaac will go up the mountain and Isaac and I will come back down the mountain. Abraham trusted and feared God so much that he knew that he would walk back down that mountain with Isaac no matter what, even if it meant God had to raise him from the dead. So even before Abraham goes up Mount Moriah, he is demonstrating great trust and great fear in God. So it can't possibly mean that, oh, I didn't know you feared me, Abraham, but now I know. Now I get it. I was ignorant before, but now I'm not ignorant anymore. It can't possibly mean that. So what does it mean? Well, I believe this means that God has experiential knowledge. Experiential knowledge. So God not only has exhaustive, definite foreknowledge that Abraham will obey him, but in the moment that Abraham does obey him, he has experiential knowledge. God can know in advance what is going to happen, but he can still be intimately involved in the moment that it does happen. It's not either or, it's both and. God at the moment that Abraham obeys him has experiential knowledge of what is taking place with Abraham moment by moment, second by second, as the events unfold. If I could give you an illustration of this, it's like a wedding. 
let's say a couple is going to get married, and leading up to the wedding, they meet with the officiant, the pastor, and they go, they go over moment by moment the order of events, the order of the ceremony. So they sit there, and they look at the paper, and they go, okay, I know we're going to sing this hymn, and then we're going to do this, and we're going to do that, we're going to stand here, and all this. And then the night before the wedding, they go through a rehearsal of the wedding. Moment by moment, they know exactly what is going to happen. And so the couple, the night before the wedding, they sit back and they say, okay, I know what it's like to get married, to go through a wedding. I know exactly what will happen. That is foreknowledge. You know what's going to happen. But is that not different from when you are actually standing there before your bride or when you are actually standing there before your groom and you say, I do? That is experiential knowledge. And you sit back and say, now I really know intimately in the moment as it is unfolding moment by moment what it's like to be married. You had foreknowledge, but you also have experiential knowledge. And that's exactly what's happening with God to Abraham. God both knows what is going to take place, but he is intimately involved in the moment that it does take place. Secondly, open theism has a theological problem. Open theism elevates man's free will above God. And I'll say this straight out. Open theism denies God his own deity. Open theism denies God what it means to be God. Isaiah 41.23, God challenges the idols. He says to them, declare the things that are going to come afterward, that we may know you are gods. The test of true deity is predicting the future. A true God must be able to predict the future. That's what it means to be God. Isaiah 42, 8 through 9 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. Yahweh alone is God. He will not give his glory to another. But look at what Yahweh's claim to deity is. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. Yahweh's claim to deity is his own exhaustive, definite foreknowledge. If you rob God of foreknowledge, you rob God of deity. If you take away God's foreknowledge, you take away what it means to be God. Brethren, this is a serious assertion. We must let God be God. Third and last pastoral problem. Open theists argue that precisely because God does not know the future, this is a great comfort to believers. Because God does not know what is going to happen in your future, that should be comforting to you. Greg Boyd tells a story of a young woman named Suzanne. Suzanne was a Christian. She had a great heart for Asia and she wanted to be a missionary. She went to Bible college, and she met a young man who had also had a heart for Asia. He also wanted to be a missionary. So they prayed about it. They dated. They fasted. They consulted others. They counseled with others. They fell in love, and they got married. 
They went to two years of missionary training, preparing for the field in Asia. And then he cheated on her. He did it again and again and again. Suzanne went to Greg Boyd to seek pastoral counsel, to seek help, because her life was shattered, her dream was shattered. This is the wise, comforting pastoral counsel that Boyd gave to Suzanne. He said, Suzanne, take comfort. God didn't know this was going to happen. This caught him just as off guard as it caught you. Now, I don't know what comfort Suzanne received from that counsel, but I certainly don't receive any. Brethren, we must trust in a sovereign, all-knowing, all-wise God. Romans 8.28 is true. It's true when it says, we know that God works all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Brethren, this should be our comfort. This should be our comfort. Oh, Christian, God is ordering everything in your life in his perfect wisdom for your best good. What is your greatest goal? Conformity to the image of Christ. And in God's wisdom, God has chosen the best possible means to that best possible goal. That means God has chosen every circumstance, every trial, every thorn in your flesh, every place you want to be and every place you don't want to be. God has chosen it all in his infinite wisdom. Sometimes you and I, brothers and sisters, we can be reformed in our thinking, but open theists in our practice. As if this circumstance in our life caught God off guard. As if he didn't know this was coming. As if this was out of God's control. Brethren, we must stop thinking like open theists. We must stop thinking like the world. God knows the future. And in God's infinite wisdom, he has chosen every single circumstance in your life for your own good and for his ultimate glory so that we can say, for from you and through you and to you are all things. To God be the glory forever. Let us pray. Father who is in heaven, Lord, we need to trust you. Lord, we need to trust you, our all-knowing, all-wise God. Father, we admit we are so weak. We are so frail. Lord, our souls often slumber. Awake us, O God, to an all-wise, all-knowing God who loves and cares for us and knows our every need moment by moment who is intimately involved with us every single moment of our day, every single moment of our lives. Lord, we pray that even now, as we share a food of fellowship, that we would speak words of encouragement to one another. Lord, may you receive all the glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.